1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another Game Dev Unchained podcast episode, the number one game development podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham, and with me, a special guest, Mel Kirk. How are you doing, Mel?
0: Hey, good, Brandon. Uh, Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course, man. Thanks for coming on. Uh, This is the part of the podcast, actually, where I kind of ask our guests, which is yourself, about yourself, uh, where you've been, where you're at, and where you're heading.
0: Sure. Uh, man, I started in, in games. Seems like it, like it's been like a blur. Uh, 2004, <laughs> I got into the industry. Um, I started working for a PR and marketing firm that was uh, aimed at helping uh, developers and publishers with uh, external marketing resources and, and whatnot. Just kind of uh, whatever needed to be done. Back in those days, it was it was much different than now. But I ended up like helping companies get publishing licenses. Uh, you know figure out if they should advertise in game informer figure out if they should go to e3 what does a booth look like down in the doldrums of kensha hall uh things like that i got in some of my first projects i got to work on were uh, guitar hero and guitar hero 2 back with harmonics and red octane um, i then got to go forward into all sorts of other wild forms of branded entertainment like a star trek mmo um, Worked on, I don't know, Jackass the game uh, for PSP. Uh, that was a lot of fun. We actually went on tour on the Warp Tour with, with Jackass and the guys trying to get them to uh, create levels and upload them to YouTube, which YouTube was like a brand new thing back then. Um, so spent six or seven years there, kind of did everything. And then uh, found my way to Zen Studios. Um, and it was a small team based in Budapest, Hungary, uh, very small back then. They're, they were working on a pinball game, which I thought was cool because I love pinball. Um, they needed help with very specific things. I just decided to join the team full time. And I've been there ever since uh, helping build build the, the company. Um, that was in 2011 I landed there, 2010. Um, and then we were actually, we were just acquired uh, by the Embracer Group under Saber Interactive. Uh, just we made that announcement, I think like a couple of weeks ago, in November. Um so it's been a wild ride uh, all these years. Uh working a lot of really cool different things. I think I've got a pretty good handle on pretty much all aspects of the game industry from the coming up with the game concept on a piece of paper all the way through to when you push a button and it goes out the door and then hopefully seeing it you know do well and players, you know, finding an audience and players enjoying it. So But everything in between all the business related aspects, not so much a designer or a coder, but I do have a lot of input. Uh, I've had a lot of input over the years on very specific things and games, which I believe have made them uh, what they are. So that's a bit about me and what I do. Um, And, you know, (laughs) there you go.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's quite a lot. So we'll we'll go through a bit. Right. Business development has always been a curiosity. Uh, It's one like I'm actually spending a lot of my time now doing that. And it's just something that haven't, I feel like a lot of game developers kind of fall into it and learn through experience more so than actual schooling. Um, is that partly true? I mean, were you learning things on the go or did you have a little bit of a college education behind it to get things going?
0: Yeah, I, I came straight out of university with a business degree um, and also a psychology degree, which is fo- focused on consumer behavior. And I wanted to get into games. I mean, I knew, I mean, I, you know, lifelong gamer started back in the NES days, uh, PlayStation, and then, and then went through there. And I, I knew I wanted to work in games, but, um, I wasn't really sure how to go about and, and get involved. And so really what I tried to do is just latch onto a company that, you know, somebody working in the industry, of course, at the very bottom, and then always just raise my hand and just say, Oh, uh, I can do that or I'll figure that out because uh, this was a time when um, things were were developing pretty quickly, um, and you take in case the the product like Guitar Hero, where the the box was way bigger than than um, you know what games were traditionally sold sold as in jewel cases, and it cost a lot more than a, a game. It just it didn't fit, and so we had to be really creative about how we we sold the game into retail or how we were going to do the marketing and the communication for it. And really, there was no precedent for how that was done, so I was doing a lot of biz dev and marketing and uh, PR for that, but you know, my attitude was just, we'll figure it out. You know, that's kind of my own, I feel like an entrepreneurial type of spirit and just a a thing. So no matter what sort of book knowledge I may have come out of school with, or, you know, what was going on around us, really, there was no precedent. It was very experimental. It was very, let's just try this and see if it works. If it doesn't, we pivot. Um, Thinking fast on your feet, uh, working hard, very, very hard. Showing up to PlayStation, literally saying, how do we get a publishing license? Uh, I I need to do this, you know, filling it out there in person with a pen and paper. Um, So it was just that some of the stuff, I think maybe you can't teach just the hard work to showing up, the being there ready to do something. And then, uh, you know, just loving what you do, loving games, wanting to see them succeed. Um, And I think it's done differently now, you know, this, that was a different time, but now, um, you know, I I think that uh, there's, there's a more straightforward path, more of the, you apply for a job and, you know, you, you get in the door, you might start in a certain division, depending on the size of the company. You know, the EAs, the Activisions, the big guys of the world. You you go through that process, but still, on the indie side, um, if you're scrappy, if you're um, you know entrepreneurial, you understand the web, you understand uh, viral aspects and social marketing, and just how to harness the power of the web. Like, I think you can get into a small indie team and show some real value and like really help build a company from the ground up. I still think that that opportunity really exists today.
1: Yeah I think one of the um one of the things about the game industry and I feel like this in every discipline um more so in business development is the lack of documentation and in a lot of it is kind of going through and, and and testing new grounds and especially uh being the business guy you're you're always trying to get out of your comfort and just go out and ask. and I I think there's naturally some reservation about developers not wanting to bother people (laughs) or it's like, it's too uncool to bother people where it's like the persistence actually help land a lot of the bigger deals. It's like just making yourself known and your company known uh, to the other interested party or potentially interested party. Um, Was that something always kind of part of your college education? Was it something unique to game development or anything particular about the game industry that, that pushes you to kind of push back, uh, as much as you can.
0: Yeah. Well, back then, you know, I would say, I would really say nothing I I learned in my college experience was practical to the game industry other than learning how to be organized and maybe learning how to learn quickly. Um, you know, I just remember in school, like, you know, you're, uh, it kind of pushes you to, um, to become organized and, and think on your feet. So I, I took those things with me for sure. But look, there's, if you're working on the biz dev side, you know, you gotta be organized on in the sense of learning and knowing how a spreadsheet works and keeping track of numbers. And hopefully you're working with a team on a creative vision that is achievable within your budget and with a t- within a time frame. So you're, you know, if you do have funding in front of you, you're not exceeding that. And uh, like kind of forcing yourself to go into a position where you have to make, um, a deal because you're kind of like, man, we're out of money. We don't, we're out of time. Like, we we just have to get do something. So that forces you into a position where you don't have any leverage because you got to make a deal. Um, if you are, if if you can manage those in the early phase and get a project shipped um, and have enough sense to to move some units and to get going um, or to knock on a door to get a publishing deal, you know, I would say be tenacious with it. Don't feel like you're bugging people. A lot of times. Uh, you know, especially we, we've been in the publisher seat ourselves where we've published games from third parties and when I was knocking on the door of somebody else to publish our game. So I've seen it both ways. I've always found that like, you're not gonna bother somebody. Um, it just takes, the, everyone's so busy in this industry, like trying to do more with less kind of on an ongoing basis. But if you just you know try to build a network, uh, you find somebody who gives you the time of day, latch onto that, ask them for advice, um, just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And, and, you know, I think it's a Hollywood story too. Like this is kind of, you know, the game industry is young in a sense that we're in a place where Hollywood was maybe 50 years ago or however many it was, but we're accelerating faster um, due to circumstances, uh, you know, COVID or technology changing and the way that our industry operates. But I think it was very like, similar. Um, if you have a creative vision you have a product and you're working on something, it's up to you to, to, to make a deal or to make it a financial success. You know, there's no there's no shortage of knocking on someone's door and asking them to uh, to take a look or being uh, I don't know creative and finding a way to to get your stuff in front of somebody. So um, I don't know if that's answering the question. I I think that it just it's maybe in some cases a little easier now because you can also use influencers uh, for for that sort of thing. If you can, you know, they're almost like I almost view influencers as somewhat of a way to to break in as well. So and there's you got a lot of them with all our... Different sizes and and scopes of audiences, but um, if you find um, your path, then you know you get some traction. I would say, you know, you're on your way.
1: I think one of the 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 barriers that I feel smaller teams kind of put up around them is approaching these big partners or potential big partners, and having, like you said, having leverage definitely helps, but also feeling inadequate to to even approach the big partners in the first place, like how much of that is true? Like how much do you need to have if you have a great idea, but you don't necessarily have the audience or uh, the people to kind of push that idea across to be like, hey, we can handle your IP and express it in a very unique way, but just lack the audience right now. Like what what is the leverage usually in that kind of scenario?
0: Yeah, I I think it can be different every time. If you're talking about a one, you know, say one person and you're working on your own project and you've, you know, you don't have the means to see it all the way through. And so you're looking for, you know, if it's just an idea on paper, that's one thing. If you've got a working prototype, that's another. If you've got a vertical slice, that's another. And if you're just looking for completion funding, that's quite another. All of those have different, you know different stages to them and you're going to be received differently by with with everything. Um, I would say you're in a much better place. If you have a team established or a fully functional proof of concept, vertical slice, you know, that's where you probably have leverage um, to go in and really make something happen. Anything earlier you're, you know, you might be spinning your wheels. Someone might not take you seriously, unless you've already shipped a project a successful project before, or just can demonstrate some level of success. So the, the barrier to entry, I think, kind of keeps getting pushed further and further down because games are expensive and they're risky. So having some proof in the pudding or some success to show for it, you're going to do that much better. Uh, for somebody who's just starting out and you have an idea on a piece of paper and that's as far as you've you've you know made it, I'd say that you know you're you you need to do more in order to like really be taken seriously or to try to get a deal done. Um, if you're just a business person with an idea as well. You know, and maybe you've got resources to go hire a team, and you get to a point where you create something. Um, sure, that that's a path. Or if you are the creative person, you don't have any business sense, uh, but you you really have an idea. You might want to then go find a business person or a BD or somebody who can help you um, start to put a framework together for what a budget looks like. Maybe go get some funding, raise some money, um, or you know, even just get a, a marketing team behind you to help kickstart the idea. I mean, there's a lot of different ideas and pass, but um, it depends on where you're starting from, where you're coming from, what stage of the project you are.
1: I think one of the, um, the trend nowadays is cyberpunk, right? And we kind of know the story behind CD Red Project with their Richard series, you know, the, the, and it's something I feel like a lot of indie development team Uh, Should take more advantage of of existing IPs and not completely wearing all the hats and and trying to come up with a new idea, innovative idea, but using something that is kind of known and has a lot of uh, a lot of backing in story and development already years put into it and then taking that into a new medium. So The Witcher was kind of like that where they struck a deal with the author and it was mutually beneficial, but didn't break the bank. And then the rest of the history still required a lot of hard work, obviously, from the game development. But, like, they didn't have to sit down and completely come up with a lore that could have been time-consuming. And rather, they put that effort into the game design. Um, like, that was one in a million type of story where I don't feel like any <laughs> development is... Um, it's taken advantage of that more often. I, I can't really even think of another story that's like that. Uh, being the biz dev guy, like how how much of a missed opportunity with that type of thinking, is it mostly out of fear where smaller teams, like we kind of mentioned, don't feel like they can approach and read a book and, and kind of mm-hmm. somehow, you know, figure out that path because there isn't really a clear path of doing that.
0: Yeah, uh, these are these are great questions. Um, and, you know, Zen has a lot of experience working with with IPs in our uh, in our pinball games. You know, and, and that's kind of where we established the company. We decided to really focus on one thing and doing it really well, actually doing it the best, and just trying to own it. And in that, we work with a lot of different IPs. When we first got started, um, uh, Street Fighter was the first IP we worked with, and then we went on to Ninja Gaiden. And I think uh, after that, we went we got to Marvel, but the first three, four deals that we did, I would say like those were, I mean, I don't want to say they were bad deals for Zen because we knew that we were going to have to cut kind of bad deals for us that were really expensive selling your soul. So to speak, because you have to have proof that you can do it. And if you haven't done it before, they're going to look at you. And in our case, who's this uh, small little studio from Budapest, Hungary? Like, why are we going to, trust them with our IP and, and are they even going to pay us royalty and are they good on their word and can they create the product that they're are talking about? So it cost us a lot to do that, but we knew what our roadmap was. and We knew we could do it well. Uh, we had already had a little success and we had some money in the bank. So we felt okay making that investment. Um, and that was our, our pathway to IP with, with Zen, uh, which, you know, now we don't have to necessarily cut that sort of deal. And we have a lot of IPs coming to us, which is nice. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said about going out and finding an IP that maybe is ripe for interactive and in gaming. There's a ton of source material in comic books. Um, I still think comic books are the number one source for, for almost everything. Uh, movies, games, you, there's a lot. I mean, that's where you find a lot of inspiration. And there are a ton of comics that, um, you know, are just sitting there waiting and i know would don't break the it wouldn't break the bank in terms of you know getting rights to create material based on on those comics um, and so that's where i would you know i always tell people if you want to get into ip and you want to start somewhere find like go find your favorite comic or find a story that's just waiting uh, to be told in games and other forms of media and you know it, rather than trying to go pitch marvel or you know some global ip where you know you have to be you have to know what you're doing. You have to have some sort of pedigree and proof in the pudding already established to, to get there. Um, and, and the resources and the finances available to do that. So um, yes, IPs are there. The Witcher's a fantastic example uh, with what CD Projekt Red did. Um, I think that there's, there's more of those opportunities. It is harder to get above the noise these days. I mean, there's, you know, so many games, so many things coming out. But IP also helps if you find an IP with a, um, a fan base already helps lower your cost of marketing and, and users right coming in so you can introduce something to them that they already love in a universe that they already love and hopefully you've made a good game um, so that's certainly um, a path like kind of in my mind it fast forwards your path to uh, to success um in but you got to do it well, you know, um, and IP holders are going to hold you accountable um, on the way. They're going to have input into your idea, into your vision for the game. And they're going to want to they're going to have a full approval. And so, you know, it might take you longer to get something out than it would have otherwise not working with an IP. But um, yeah, uh, that, that's what that, that's what I think would be helping.
1: And I would love to kind of dive a little deeper in the beginning of Zen Studios and working with these IPs without having like, you know, the the resume to kind of that you guys are enjoying now, right? Um, So, there was a lot of uh, give and take in that type of relationship. And uh, you were mentioning kind of like having a firm roadmap to look... At uh to refer back to when you are feeling <laughs> like you're being shanked with these deals, right? I think that's incredibly helpful. Like what, what advice do you have uh for people who are thinking along this path? Because I do agree with you, like it is a path that is less traveled for a lot of indie devs because for whatever reasons, right? But I think it is one of the safest steps uh if they are, like you said, three games out. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, where they're thinking forward about three games after instead of just one hit wonders embedding everything uh, into that, which causes a lot of problems, right? Uh, I would love to kind of hear your thoughts about uh, more insight about that process at the beginning and what uh, expectations you guys had and, uh, you know, non-expectations that occurred uh, during that development.
0: Sure. Um, so I have to like, you know, back up a little bit and tell a little bit of a story, you know, about pinball itself. Uh, pinball lived in arcades um, for for many, many years. And it's always been a game that's associated with IP. And the pinball machine itself was designed to like immortalize a moment in an IP or a universe that people loved. And there's a lot of mass market, um, you know, it, all the big 80s movies and 90s movies and even bands that they had their own pinball machine. So it's a game that was already well known and recognized and there's flippers and a ball and people generally get it. Um, there's also been a uh, space cadet pinball, which was OEMed onto on to uh, windows 95, I believe, which might be the most played pinball game of all time. And everybody who booted up their computer on the Microsoft OS was, was playing that game. And so, you know, there's kind of this, this well-known aspect about it. And we just saw that nobody had done a, a digital pinball game for consoles yet or, or a PC that was like really good and monetizing well. So when we identified an opportunity, the first thing we did was we, we built the game with our own original IP um, and we launched it. And um, onto Xbox Live Arcade back in 2007 um, was, was the first launch. And, you know, lo and behold, it became the number one game on Xbox Live Arcade. It was kind of a, it was a shock to Microsoft. It was a shock to Zen but it just showed that, okay, here's a game that people want. So we know there's a demand for it. Um, and then we started to turn our attention and our thinking into like, okay, pinball needs to have IP because it's the way it's always been. What IPs um, are really relevant right now and what's approachable for us in terms of something that won't totally break the bank and, um, you know, will uh, will give us a shot. And so, uh, that, that was kind of our approach to it. Um, so we, we had our proof of concept. We were already monetizing. We had money coming in. We felt like we could take that next level of risk or and make an investment in IP. Um, we had a, a friend of mine, John D. He's over. He was at Capcom at the time. He's now at Arcade 1UP. We're actually reunited now working on uh, virtual pinball machines together. Um, he was in, uh, instrumental. Like we approached him and we showed him the product. We showed him what we thought we could do. We got a deal done for Street Fighter. Now it's the most royalty we've ever paid. Um, it, it was you know crazy because it's, it's a Japanese company. Very uh, um, you know I would just say Street Fighter was hot at the time, and yeah, you know very com- commanded commanded the the money that we were going to pay them. Uh, so we did it. We jumped in and we did it, and um, and it was great that we did because we, we felt like okay if we can show that we can do a successful table uh, with a with an awesome license. Uh, going forward, we're gonna be able to do this with, you know, who knows what. And we had our next, we, we, you know, we were like, uh, because we had success with the Japanese company, then we went to Ninja Gaiden, but we always had our sights on Marvel and Star Wars and Jurassic Park and things like that. But we knew that we just had to take the, the right steps to get there, be patient, pay our dues, so to speak, um, but always focus on the, the quality product because licensors wanna know that you're gonna take care of their IP, but they're not going to have to chase you if you make a bad game and it comes out and it hurts them. And everyone's like, what's this crappy street fighter game? You know, like that hurts more than, than anything. And that'll kill your chances more than anything. So we were committed to quality products, to paying our dues, understanding the roadmap, knowing that if we did this well, we could own digital pinball and move forward. So we, we put a lot of eggs in that basket and we went for it. And, um, it paid off. And, uh, that's, a, that's a bit about the process that we took care of.
1: And I always equate the, uh, the roadmap and I would love to kind of hear your more, your take on it because being the biz def guy, uh, it kind of equates to like, (laughs) like a crime scene where they're like seeing the red string connecting to what, and to me it feels like that's how we should approach and are approaching a lot of how these networks kind of connect and one step at a time. Uh, And it's one of those things where, Game developers don't have that background into thinking that way um, or at least transferring their game design knowledge over to business where uh they're taught to think that way. Uh, I would love to kind of hear your your thinking process behind that. Like, how, how were you able to, did you look at people? Did you look at the licensing? You said you, you guys kind of had like your beacon towards Star Wars and Marvel licenses. Um, and how, how did you draw the string from Street Fighter to Ninja Gaiden? Like, w- was that all planned from the beginning or was it it kind of happened and then you, you're constantly like reevaluating and, and replotting your roadmap?
0: Yeah, it, it's a bit of both. Uh, first of all, we had we had some sales data, right? Like we showed what happens when we sell games with um, based on our own IP. What happens when we sell a game based on Street Fighter and Ninja Gaiden? And also, when we when somebody comes in because of Street Fighter, what happens to those original tables that we had, which are our own? Well, we found like cool. We can go after um, the Street Fighter audience, pull them into Pinball FX, and now they buy. They also bought the uh, the, the Zen original table, so we saw kind of an all ships rise. Um, situation, and that gave us kind of some case studies going forward. So when we went to, to, you know, Marvel. We said, Marvel, here's some proof from the pudding. Like we made a, whatever 80 Metacritic game that Metacritic had was important back in the time as well, showing that quality bar. Um, and here's the sales uh, proof. Here's what we think we're gonna do, be able to do with Marvel. Um, If we create a, you know, pack of tables and if, Hey, you guys have an FIP. So we can build a universe here. Like Marvel pinball can be its own universe. So there's the pitch putting together the, the, the forecast, the, um, the long-term range of what this relationship looks like, the product roadmap. We want to do these characters, these characters. And Oh, by the way, now you have movies coming over here for MCU. Like what we can get into that and you just start to put together a big picture plan that they can get behind you show that you're very specialized and very dedicated to your craft. You know, we, we go in there pitching pinball. We don't later pivot and say, now we want to make like a, um, you know, ultimate alliance game for, you No, know, like we don't go outside those bounds. We know what our role is. We know what we're trying to do with Marvel. And we stick to that. Um, and then we go, we get into product development, you know, and it ships and hopefully you exceed expectation. Um, and and then you just continue on working together. And that's why we've been working like, say, for Mar- with Marvel for Uh, geez, a decade now. I mean, uh, 2010, December was Oh, we're right here at the uh, the 10 year anniversary. Um, And so, you know, as, as you prove yourself out, you know, you, you continue on. And then of course, yes, you, you're reevaluating the roadmap. You discover certain things, um, you know, one-off opportunities will show up like Plants for Zombies, for example, right? It hit, it was huge pop cap, you know, another at the time, an indie studio, very approachable, we had mutual friends and we just say, hey, Zan, you're making the best pinball. Hey, PopCap, you've got awesome plans for zombies. Let's do a plans for a zombie stable. And we do it, you know, and that was not like on the map. Uh, that was not something that we planned. It was just those opportunities start to reveal themselves to you it's a good and bad thing. I mean, it can be distracting. It can get you a little bit off your strategy, but then you say, well, we haven't done this sort of a game yet. Maybe it's going to bring us a whole new audience. And it, it did. It brought us a huge amount of, of, uh, uh, of female players, which I believe brought, you know, started then giving the game to their kids. We saw that come in. We saw, you know, sales of everything else go up because it came for plans for zombies uh, but they stayed for everything else. And so, you know, that was just the nature that, of the game that we'd find ourselves with, with pinball specifically. Um, and it, it turned into us building this franchise, right? Pinball FX became a franchise, uh, which is still going today. And I think that that's another thing that you want to focus on is when you start working on something, you want to be very true and make sure you nail it the first time and make it as good as and awesome as you can. But like, do you see the roadmap for this thing to become a franchise? And can I be working on this 3, five, eight, 10 years from now? It's a game now. Can there also be merch? Can there be a TV show? Can there be this? That's where game developers find themselves now is we are creating... The IPs and the entertainment that is going to shape, I believe, a long-term future of entertainment at this point. And this is all new thinking. I mean, game developers traditionally haven't thought this way. I think you see the companies who have and have developed these power franchises that just sell year after year. Now it's a question about whether or not they're innovating with those. But once you establish a franchise, I mean, you it's worth your while to continue investing and let that compound for you and let that work for you over time and history. Um, on the pinball side, I mean, we've, we've done a lot. We continue to go there, but, you know, it's a never ending. Uh, where do we go next? What do we do next? How do we keep it fresh? How do we make it feel like we've done over 100 pinball tables now? Um, there's 20 Marvel. There's 20 Star Wars. Do we need to keep making more tables? And we're constantly reevaluating those. Um, so that's a little bit of an insight into the way, you know, we process here. and What, what my job is essentially is to help sort out.
1: Yeah and first of all you know congratulations on the acquisition. Hopefully that was I <laughs> I I'm I'm, I'm I'm guessing that was part of the the business roadmap of like acquisition, right? Um how how do you how do you usually plan for something like that? You know, you have a target audience? Uh you're building momentum are you also looking at the inner roadmap, like possible potential suitors uh, that this business of yours will eventually be attractive enough for them to consider things like how, how do you usually factor that in? Is it a lot of research on potential suitors or, 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 or is it just happenstance kind of culmination of things happening and then it opportunities kind of popping up?
0: I think it happens uh, for companies differently every time. Um Look, uh, one thing I love to point to is like Insomniac and Sony, you know, they got together and they made um, Spider-Man, which was yeah. a fantastic game. And Marvel was involved and it was this exclusive deal. You know, I think that that made a lot of sense. They're, they, they probably figured out that they loved working together. They had long-term interests aligned. They, they had a great time making Spider-Man together. So that's one way an acquisition happened. You got a company like Zen. where we're, we're kind of an OG indie, you know, we're, we're one of the first hybrid developer publishers going to digital content um, sort of thing, had a longer, a much longer path just of finding our way, stumbling, making the mistakes, learning from them, somehow staying in business, uh, maneuver, uh, maneuvering around changes in technology and all this stuff. Uh, somehow somebody thought, I mean, like, you know, we've had other fish circling our our, 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 our us for a long time. You said, Zen, come be a part here. Come do this. Come, you know, can we acquire you? It's always been about like, you know, I don't know when the, if we felt that this time was just right or what was going on in the industry, what's in front of us, but we just felt like we kind of got to the point where we took this as far as we could go on our own mm-hmm. um, and that we, have, we saw huge potential in front of us, exciting potential. We kind of whittled that down into a framework of what we thought it would take to achieve. And we just said, all right, we can do this on our own, but it's probably going to take us another 10 years. And what happens if we just find a partner that can help us accelerate now? And this partner has similar vision, a similar uh, culture, similar, um, you know, idea of just how we treat people. Just all the things that go into making, because making a game is really, really hard and then making it commercially successful is hard. So finding that right partner with the right fits and would help us accelerate this vision. And that's what we found with Embracer Group and, and you know, Saber Interactive. So for us, it was just it wasn't like we were building this to sell it or that that was our end goal. Or we wanted to have an exit. It was just the right time, the right circumstances. Suddenly we were like, okay, we built this thing and it's awesome. Here's where we go with it, but how do we do that? And this will enable us to do it much faster. Um, and I think without like aging, uh, much more because <laughs> mm-hmm. starting to get gray hair. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's where it's at.
1: Yeah. I, I, and, um, I I feel like the the internal struggle with indie development or any game developers has always been um, the allure of of creating your own IP from scratch, right? And uh, I would love to kind of ask you, you guys were experimenting with that, done that many times, as well as having these these sure deals, you know, mid and later development, where like, hey, this is sure money, it's a good license. And you guys kind of find a happy medium there where you like, these are awesome Marvel IP, Star Wars IP, we love doing this. But there's always that you know kind of like uh, pull for it's like you know I have my ideas too. I would love to contribute to that like how how did you navigate that with the creative team to ba- find a balance that works for you guys uh, without you know taking too much risk uh, which is always seems to be the deterrent of of, of new ideas.
0: Yeah, well, I can answer this now for you in a in a in, in two ways. Now thinking about Zen's uh, non pinball business, which we basically we do pinball and non pinball, and that also includes our RPGs. On the pinball side, it was it was about taking like not taking the risk was actually the risk because then the game a game might feel the same, or they might some a player might say, oh, they just reskinned this. Um, we have to be sure that with every new table that we're making there's a new gameplay mechanic based on the ip that we're licensing or on our own creative idea but that the core gameplay mechanic for example like um for the infinity gauntlet with marvel that was an opportunity to go bonkers because you know thanos and all the gems we could do a different gameplay mechanic around each gem and one of them was uh, i believe it was a reality gem where we flipped the entire pinball table upside down so you know, that's the first time that's ever been done. And that just wowed people. And it was they're like, okay, you know, like Zen is really going for it. This is crazy. Uh, we always walk a fine line between what can be done in the real world and what is our video game. And so we embrace obviously being a video game to its fullest potential, I believe. Um, but the risk there was like, like I said, we've done almost a hundred tables, making sure that they're they're fresh and that we're doing something innovative. Um, and I think the risk is not taking the risk. Now on the RPG side where we're doing, um, you know, RPGs are a whole different animal. Um, and we've made some really good ones that nobody's known about. Um, and I think that's another reason, you know, Saber can help us uh, w- with that as well. And, and the acquisition will help us make sure no, no, our, our RPGs are more known. But a game like Castle Storm back in 2013 was this crazy super genre mashup. We're just throwing a whole bunch of different things together, RTS, RPG, Physics-based destruction, Angry Bird style gameplay, but it was born out of our ability to do games really well with physics. Obviously, pinball being a physics-based game. We took our physics engine, we applied our love of pen and paper RPG, um, kind of a um, you know, a story that didn't take itself too seriously because we weren't really good at storytelling yet. And we started to build out our capability to do RPG. That was a huge risk for us because we are now departing from our core competency and saying we want to compete over here and we think we can do well here. We had this kind of cash engine going, you know, like a pillar in the company that could fund an RPG development. And if we failed completely, we're not out of business. So we we waited until we were at that point where we felt like we're not going to kill ourselves if if we don't make it. Luckily, the game was awesome. Like Castle Storm was a you know, very, it was a big success um, for for our company. Um, and then from there, we've gone on to make others. Um, and as there's, it's just been more competitive in gaming altogether. So it's harder to you know to market that. It's clear that marketing and selling an RPG is completely different than our our selling a pinball table. Um, And we've learned a lot of lessons along the way about that. But there's two different types of risks, right? There's the risk of innovation with something you already do really well, then taking a risk and doing something you've never done before, but you think you can and you're ready to make that leap and let's see what happens while not completely killing your company if you fail. So we went through, through both of those um, sort of risk, you know, assessments.
1: Uh, another point is that, um, that I, I love to kind of hear more about is the, uh, the risk assessment assessment is great. And, um, a lot of it too, is about team growth or, or, uh, you know, just maintaining the talent without putting too much at risk by growing the team too fast. Right. Mm-hmm. I always attribute to, uh, studio success through sustainability more so than those one huge hit wonders. Right. I I much rather have a company that I adore around the next 30 years than, than one that, you know, has like a massive explosion of popularity and then was is gone the next two years, right. Which is a lot of, uh, game development, um, studios. So uh, I would love to kind of hear more of your thoughts about that. Like how did you guys balance between the two from, You know especially with all these ips coming to you guys and you know if we do more then more money will come in so the allure of that is always attractive but at the same time you know we have a roadmap Mm -hmm. we want to grow this team to a certain degree we want to maintain the culture as much as possible and 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 focus on the creative more so than just managing people and, and and constantly just having to get them in and stuff like uh would love to kind of hear the balance of that
0: yeah you know, Zen has never, we've never had a time in our history where we ramped up for a game, launched it and then like let people go. We've been conservative in our approach to growth, adding a couple people every year, like finding the right people um, and actually turnover at Zen is super low. I mean, really we've only lost a couple people over the, these last 10 years, which I think is a testament to the way we manage things. We don't crunch. Like there's been, a, been like two or three instances where it was like a month of craziness. But I mean, generally speaking, we try to be Zen in our culture, like Zen studios is Zen. We do certain things, nobody wears, well, back in the, before COVID, nobody wore shoes in the office. We wore slippers and just things about it that are Zen. And the culture is very important and sustainability is, is very, very important. Um, also, we found, you know, guys were working on pinball games for many, many years and they wanted to do something else. That so was another driving decision to, um, to start working in RPGs or these non-pinball titles These guys did have ideas um, and, and team members wanted to do other things. And so we, we said, well, can't just expect people are gonna wanna work on pinball for a decade and do nothing else. Um, so that was, you know, part of our sustainability and part of our effort to make sure people were happy and finding fulfillment. Um, and, you know, sure, while we want we want to grow, we think like all this, like let's just hire a whole bunch of people, double down, go for it. That's never been our approach. Um, we've, we've always made, been conservative. We've always tried to make sure that getting too far ahead of ourselves we've seen plenty of examples of like you mentioned of scale up build something it doesn't work everyone's gone down to this little core team again you know and that, no. in my in my mind like that's harder to deal with than slow growth I'd rather grow slow methodically successfully make sure people are happy and this is a sustainable effort and you look at Zen you know like I said like 2007 published your own game before that was worked for hire but it, here in 2020' still going. Um, I think it's sustainable.
1: Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah, I feel like that's a lesson that indie developers uh, can definitely learn from because I, I I I see a lot of potential where the first idea, maybe the marketing timing and all that wasn't right and the game is great or vice versa. The marketing thing was great, but the game isn't quite there and needed more time. Like there's a weird combination of those two, but it's always... uh people put all their eggs in one basket for that first game and it's like this is a studio that could have been really great three games in but mm-hmm. unfortunately because of poor planning they just don't last that long or the core team gets dispersed right and because a lot of the expectations is just too high it's like this is your first time doing anything you're gonna have a hit uh that's insane you, <laughs> most games are like five games in before they yep. actually get the rhythm right um I, I kind of want to go back to the history a bit, right? You, you, you were talking about uh, getting hired and, and going to Budapest, Hungary. <laughs> like, is there a story to that location, particularly where why the studios is kind of based out of that and, and grow? Where was was grown from there?
0: Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, so the the, the founder uh, Jolt, and and then uh, the, the the core group of like four guys, and by the way, like all but one of them are, are still there through all this. Um, you know. Hungary was. It came out of a, a Russian communist period, and um, you know, the the country economics, demographics, what they had access to was very specific during those times. So while they didn't have necessarily like Nintendo, they had a lot of pinball. They had more pinball machines per capita than anywhere else in the world during that time, and so there was this. That's what they grew up doing. That's what their fun and their outlet was. And so pinball is part of the DNA of especially the guys who at our company their their age their their profile when they grew up. And so, so they love it. It's, it's they're passionate about it. It, it, it means more to them, maybe than most people. So um, that's where it, the, the company was started. Uh, Jolt and I were introduced through mutual friends at Microsoft and an event in GDC. I want to say back in like 2006 or seven, that's where we, uh, we, we first met. Um, and we, we stayed in touch kind of, you know, I was happy to give ideas, make connections, do things. And then it was this time, you know, I just, you know, Joel flew me out there. He's like, what do you want to do? What do you want out of life? What do you want to do? And I was like, well, you know, I've helped people make their game successful and just kind of been a whatever I can do to help. But I would love to get more into what is the actual product? What is the strategy? What's the focus and the vision for a company in a studio and like help build it really from the ground up? And so we just found mutual respect for each other, common ground. We both had a lot of ideas about how to, how to treat people and what it would look like going forward. So I jumped in and, uh, and yeah, I got to go to Budapest a lot. I love it. It's like my second home, which I've only been there one time this year due to all the COVID stuff. But, um, I found kind of a, um, interesting the Hungarian people, you know, are, uh, maybe they've been misunderstood in the past or they didn't have every opportunity. They were kind of hidden away, so to speak, but like, there's so much talent and there's a lot of amazing ideas and artists and musicians and creative thinkers, So I think that, like, for the Hungarian scene itself, um, you're going to see some amazing things um, come out of there. Um, That's a little bit about the origin, the history. Um, You know, a game called Operencia that we did uh, last, two years ago now, Time Flies, um, was about Central European folktales. And this is kind of the first time we embraced our Hungarian heritage uh, as a studio to, in in a game. And so you'll find that that game, more than anything, I think embraces what a Hungarian uh, culture and what a game looks like, you know, specifically when you turn it when you turn that creativity loose, um, and their their flavor of game, so maybe how you would think about how um, CDPR did, and for for the Polish game scene, is hopefully what Zen can do for the Hungarian game scene long term.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, kind of jumping off of that, like the COVID is of course overall a horrible thing, but like the byproduct of that has been the. Uh, the open arm uh, of the industry to all these kind of marginalized parts of the world that haven't really been tampered or, or, or played into as much, right? Like I feel mm-hmm. like now that we're allowing a lot of remote workers that we're kind of looking into talent pools that we never looked into certain markets, it's allowing a lot of these talented artists and developers from around the world to kind of participate on a bigger scale. Uh, and and give their perspective. I think that's one of the biggest things. Like I feel like, uh, you know, Japanese market at first was was huge, and then the Western it kind of shifted to the Western, and now we have like a good combination of the two. But then in between that time period, you know, CD Project Red is one of the biggest gains right now, right? And it's it's uh, I think a lot of this barrier of entry is lowering enough that a lot of these developers are, are finally kind of giving their unique take that we're not used to um, because of the big IPs kind of doing the same thing. Right. Uh, I would love to kind of hear more about um, your, your take on, on how much this is going to affect uh, your industry, uh, other parts of the industry. Like how, how do you feel like the remote is going to, changed our this decade of 2020s that differs from the last decade
0: yeah uh, we've been learning this on on the fly as we go I told you it was a, it was a little scary like okay everyone's work from home bring your workstation home build an internet a more secure sort of internet communication tools um, you know off we went that in, in March of 2020 and um, it's been okay I actually think in some ways productivity has increased because people are just like, they don't have to get up and travel into the office and commute or something. They spend that time actually working and thinking. Um, they So in, in that sense, it, it, it's been okay. Projects that were already in gear, already on their, on their way and had their creative vision have been okay. Where we're finding maybe some challenge now is we're starting on some new ideas, new concepts. And it's always nice to be like in a room with somebody, just bouncing ideas off. The creative process is flowing. You got a whiteboard. So that's where I think we might run into some hiccups or it might take longer or maybe not be done as well as just like brand new creative process and understanding you know, had to kick something off and greenlight it because the, you know, <laughs> we were used to doing things a certain way. It'd be fun. We could have a meeting, a big long meeting that we could go out to dinner. we go to the pub and like, we could just carry on the conversation and it would morph and it would turn. And now we're just like doing it like this with zoom and it's not the same. Uh, so we're, we're finding our way there, but yeah, like big picture long-term I think game developers are actually adept, um, and we're, we're maybe the best position to make the most or be able to transition to this, this new sort of environment because sort of how we operated already, um, without knowing it, when a new Xbox is coming, a new PlayStation is coming or just new technology, whatever you suddenly have to pivot and you kind of start a new direction and you need to figure it all out and it becomes new. It's a new environment. It's a new thing. So I think that we're actually doing, we've done quite well. um shipping a product in an era where, you know, you're not all together, but all the Buttons are pushed correctly and all the backend systems are set up and, are, and here we go. We published it. We've, we've been able to do it. I think it's true for most of the industry. Uh, I think it's pretty impressive um, long-term. I think it's sustainable. I think people are figuring things out. A, a lot of uh, game designers and people who work in the creative process are, um, I would say they're, you know, a li- little more internalized anyway. They're not so extrovert. So being around people maybe doesn't hurt as much, but I do know that there's some people, especially at our studio that, and we know, who they are, we, we check in with them more because it's like we were their family. We were their source of interaction. And when they're just by themselves and, you know, maybe they're not married, they don't have kids and they just don't have a network in their living space, that can be lonely. And so we have to be very cognizant as the managers of the company and responsible for all these you know people to check in with them and make sure that they have what they need to, to function and, and to be appreciated. So I think it's all of us, anybody who's in our position is like, the management, you know, we're we're at least at Zen, we're we're very cognizant of that and it's important to us. So hope that helps the answer yeah, the question.
1: Definitely helps. Um naturally very curious about, you know, heads of studios, what they're thinking. And I think mm-hmm. there will be some more of a hybrid approach. I, I think people who lean too far into like Zoom forever, uh, for the rest of our life is like, nah man, <laughs> like there is a uh, creative energy that you feel within a room more so than a zoom room right there's just yep. something there that you bounce off it's a little quicker um but uh this is an option for those who can't be in the same locale that is the next best thing and i think a combination of the two is the best scenario for for moving forward uh i'm going to tarantino this question because this is kind of harking back a little bit <laughs> a little bit earlier in our interview right you were talking about before zen um, you were working on uh, Guitar Hero, right? And and getting that peripheral, a, a new concept of like peripherals into your living room, aside from the system, that's not packaged with something, right? Just packaged with the game. I, I kind of draw the correlation between, you know, VR kind of having that, that issue at the beginning and finally starting to get some footing with their Quest 2 right now, right? Uh, what lessons do you have from that experience to what you're kind of just your own opinion and perspective of how VR is playing a factor and how people are, 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 are still somewhat resistant of, of, of fully adopting that technology.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it takes time, <clears throat> it takes a lot of investment uh, in, in content. I think once you have the killer game that everyone's talking about, that if you haven't played this, you're missing out. You know, that's what it ultimately takes to, uh, to win people over. I think with Half-Life Alex, um, you know, that we saw a moment where it kind of was like this. That was maybe one of the first times where it, it hit and people are like, you have to play this. Like, it's now mandatory. Um, I look out in the landscape and like knowing some of the VR experiences that are coming, I think that, you know, we'll continue to break down the, the, the like that need or just that, that thinking of like, eh, I can live without this for now. I'm going to wait for something really big to come. Um, I think Oculus is investing a tremendous amount of money in, in great content, um, in, in, in helping there. So as is Valve, um, I'd like to see PlayStation. Um, you know, I mean, like uh, the Iron nice. Man VR was there, but I feel like they're, they've kind of exited this a little bit. If Microsoft uh, came in with something, uh, talk about VR in the future, I think that would help. But you know, they have they have the mixed reality, or um, I forgot the name of their their thing. Hololens. But Hololens, yeah. So I think you know AR as well, um, but like thinking back to Guitar Hero, you know, we focus on the experience. Um, the, the, The big thing was how does this make you feel? Like when you put when you strap a guitar on and you start playing the music, do you feel like a rock star? And like, yes, you do. And that's what we really tried to push. So all of our marketing, the demos, everything was when someone walked into Best Buy and there was this like homeroom set up for the first time with a couch, the TV, and there was a guitar hero and you played it. And that was how you experienced it. And you felt like you could see this in your home and how it worked and you felt like a rock star. Uh, and that's, that's really what broke it down. So, um, it's a little bit different right now, right? If you want to put a headset on for the first time, um, I don't know, you can in Best Buy. I mean, then you got the COVID stuff and like, yeah. are we passing disease around and there's all the thing about if someone's got pink eye and, you know, how do you cleanse it? So there's, there's some of the same, or some different hurdles to jump through. There's got to be that killer app. There's got to be an experiential experiential element and which somebody can feel comfortable in that space and try it. Um, it is nice that there's no more wires and craziness attached. It's really out of the box. You get a quest to now out of the box, well, you got an app, you're on, you're in, you can be playing a game in like 10 minutes. So, you know, there you go.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, what the VR experience is still very lonely one. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the mere fact that it's technology requires you to put it, <laughs> put something over your eyes and just trying to zone out everything around you. It, it's a very lone experience. I think that's part of the, the issue there where it's not a party game where, you know, Guitar Hero was more of like a a communal type of experience, right? Um, it 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 is a slower adoption. I don't know what it is. I, I think Alex, like you said, is 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 definitely one of those helpful killer apps where I felt like I felt the same thing. It was the only time where I felt people were actually pushing other people that doesn't work for Facebook to got to go out and get like a VR set or to play this game, right? Um, I'm just naturally very curious because you have that kind of background to kind of see, you know, it is a sector that is peripheral based and uh and, and and it's just slowly gaining some grounds and there are a lot of interests on that in that field. It's just not, you know, developers are kind of like with some reservation, not all in yet. And then uh thankfully, you know, a, a big company such as Facebook is the one that's pushing it. But um besides the point. Uh, we are at the hour mark. I want to thank you for coming on and and sharing your biz dev knowledge. Um, I, I do want to just ask one last question, uh, before I hand the mic over to you. So if you have like a few words of wisdom to the indie crowd out there for that solo artist who, who wants to go about doing something, uh, what advice would you give them to kind of get them started as well as best practices for mm-hmm. plotting out a roadmap that's realistic for somewhat of a not guaranteed but some average success where you're not just going out there in 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 the ocean with surrounding sharks all the time
0: well i would say you know work on your network try to you know, utilize what it's social media. I mean, like every once in a while, you know, you, you mentioned artist. I see this, uh, hashtag go by every once in a while. Like it, it costs you nothing to share my work or, um, you know, artists who have established themselves at big time developers will just start sharing other people's work. If you send it to them, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, just getting visibility on your stuff, obviously, um, it, it's helpful, um, having a portfolio that's, you know, easily presentable, um, sending it to studios. If you're looking for a job or you're pitching a project, like having a a presentation that's well put together always helps Um, making yourself look as polished and professional as as possible. Um, So I would say that, that, you know, back in the day we used to have the GDCs and all these events in the world. You can go and network or get an interview or whatever. Um, Unfortunately those don't exist right now, but there are digital events that are trending and, and popping up. Um, IGDA, um, you know, the independent game developer association, um, you can become a, a part of your local chapter and start to make inroads. But I think networking is really the, the, the key, um, and just finding ways and creative ways to, to intersect with people and to hopefully start a conversation. Um, if you're like more of a, you know, if you're indie studio, you're working on a game, I would say try to, you have to think you have to get some business knowledge or IQ, um, and you have to manage a project and you have to try to ship and you have to have a budget in mind and a target and like try to hit deadlines. I know it's difficult um, and it can be theoretical, but try to operate like a real functioning company. Um, if it, there's a lot of talks online as well that you can subscribe to, or, or look at the there's, there's free talks, every, everyone from like Xbox to PlayStation or to other devs who, who do these sort of things, just, you know, listen to the experts, listen to people who have done it before. Don't be afraid to ask questions or to uh, tweet at them or send them something, because I think I think game developers, people who are successful actually are inherently um, tuned to want to help others. Like that's what I love about this industry is we're all very helpful to each other. We love to share information. I think I've you know, I'm, I'm an open book. Usually when I'm talking, I'm happy to share. Um, we do want to see others succeed you know it's not something that we hold close to our chest and say oh this is this is the secret sauce you can never we're never gonna load it out but you know I think that we're all happy to help each other um, and then I don't know I always say this thing like kind of maintain startup mode to to start with like it is crazy it's a crazy amount of work it takes you have to be driven you you're gonna fail a couple times before you succeed that's just kind of the the nature of it. Um, but just having the tenacity to continue on and to learn from those those failures and to not get, um, you know, don't be distraught about it. Just use it as a learning opportunity and just know it's part of the process um, and stay with it. So um, I think that those are some of the ingredients that and some of the things you need to keep in mind if you're going to embark on this journey. and You want to really, you know, find your way um, in the game industry and ultimately one day, like really ship a, a game that hopefully lots and lots of people um, can enjoy. and you know, that's one of the things that I always try to keep in mind is like, I feel like we're bringing joy and happiness to somebody. And and that's something I I really want to, I'm proud of and that I want to do and finding the really the heart of why you want to do something and make sure that your goals and what you're trying to accomplish are always aligning with those. So that's where
1: we're at. Well, thank you, Mel for, uh, for sharing that. And, uh, uh, as mentioned before, this is the part where I hand over the mic to you to give attention to a shout out and to point the the good people out there that are listening and viewing this right now, uh, where to go to find you, to connect with you, to talk with you, to learn more from you.
0: <laughs> sure. Um, if you want to follow me directly, like uh, I try to, I try to be active on Twitter. Sometimes I go long periods of time without. But I am at uh, Mel underscore G underscore Kirk, something like that. Mel G Kirk. Um, otherwise, I would say go for uh, for Zen's channels. We're on. We're very very active on Twitter, YouTube, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we always try to uh, respond literally to every comment or question that comes in. So um, you can find us or any number of our people. Just I think it's Zen underscore Studios is in most channels. Um, every once in a while, you'll even. I'll be tweeting from the Zen Twitter if, if need be. You'll even see like dash from Mel. So try to be accessible. Um, and, and yeah, that's where you find us.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for, for spending the hour with me and, and chatting it up and, and, and I hope everything and everybody over there is safe and sound. Uh, that concludes this week's pet podcast. Uh, I'll see you guys all next week. You can also follow me on Twitter at BlueChamps B L U C H A M P S you want to catch these episodes live every Tuesdays and Thursdays, go to twitch.tv forward slash blue underscore chance. Email me any of your concerns or questions that you want me to read aloud at the beginning of each episode at info And if you want to further support us and help unlock the next feature which is the voicemail feature, go to patreon.com